Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name's Kia Milburn, and I'm joined as usual by my very dear friend Nadia Idle. Hello. And my other very dear friend, Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And today we've got a very special uh, microdose for you, celebrating the winter solstice coming up tomorrow as we record, and the turning of the, the notional year, the new year that Europe has imposed on the rest of the world. We thought we'd bring you our cultural, perhaps our political uh, highlights of the year, framed perhaps as as the things that have brought us a little bit of enjoyment, a little bit of joy in these dark times. And in fact, we're going to call it our festive 50, although I don't think we're going to do 50 entries, in reference to, in homage to the great festive 50 that the DJ John Peel used to collect up and play, uh, very important to those of us of a certain age. Uh, talking about people of a certain age, Jeremy, could you introduce who John Peel was? <laughs> John Peel was a radio DJ, a music radio DJ in Britain. He was active from the 60s uh, right up until, when did he, re- he retire? In the late 90s, I think. Um, might have even been later. He, he was a sort of national institution. He was basically the one DJ who for decades was allowed to play any music he wanted on his late night radio show. And so he became famous for breaking lots of bands, especially sort of punk and post-punk, you know, often with live sessions on the show. Uh, a real sort of national in- institution, quite an idiosyncratic one, you know, with very quite specific tastes. And the Festive 50 was what would happen he would get he would play in the run-up to christmas 50 tracks which were supposedly ones that had been voted on by the listening audience when they first started doing it they could be from any period and then later it became the case they had to be from that year nobody really knows how rigorous the selection process was there wasn't really any way of monitoring those things in those days if you wanted to vote i think you just had to send a postcard to the po box for the show that's who john peel was that's what the festive 50 was Thanks, Jeremy. After you've um, accused John Peel, a dead great national institution <laughs> of uh, impropriety in voting. No, uh, I did. I'm just saying nobody knows. Uh, maybe they do know. Maybe it was very carefully moderated. <laughs> I, to be honest, I haven't checked. Yes. I don't. What I mean is, I don't know. Okay, great. So I'm sure somebody does know. Actually, I was completing complete nonsense. Categorically, someone will know. I just don't. Maybe know. the post bag is out there with all of the saved uh, saved votes. Yes, it'd be a nice little PhD project for somebody. Anyway, before we get going on this, let's just do our usual formal notices. Uh, the usual thing: um, we release a newsletter every month to go along with our uh, the theme of our episode. So this month. You want to sign up uh, because the episode, our trip, our main trip has been on the topic of protest. I do believe there'll be some very embarrassing photographs of um, your three lovely hosts on protests uh, in uh, in earlier days, perhaps, with uh, various uh, haircuts, etc., which um, may now prove embarrassing. Uh, so sign up to that. And if you want to sign up to that, you just go to novara.media forward slash ACFM newsletter. 
course, you may uh, tune into this show to listen to the music and not uh, your host going on uh, uh, for hours and hours. If you do do that, that's very strange as we as the chat very much exceeds the, the, the music. Uh, but of course, if you just want the music, just um, you can follow our playlist, our ever-expanding playlist on Spotify. Just search for ACFM, and that's got every song that we've ever mentioned on the show. Uh, the other thing we're asking people to do is to leave us reviews, good reviews, I would might add, five-star reviews. Uh, they really help to uh, bring new listeners to the show, and of course, we want to spread the ACFM Weird Left revolution as far and wide as we can, so please go ahead and do that. Of course, we are hosted by the ever-wonderful ever Navara Media. So if you want to support ACFM and so want to support the wider work that, that Navara Media do, and indeed you should support that, you should go along to navara.media forward slash support and become a supporter. Just pledge as much as you think you can afford. Perhaps that would be a nice New Year's resolution for you. I'm going to support all of the media that I use. Okay, parish notice is done. Let's have the first entry in our in our festive fifty slash uh, festive N. Jeremy, have you got one for us? Yes, I've decided. I think I've decided at the last minute. I'm going to uh, bring in a bit of music that was actually was actually released last year, but I definitely have continued to listen to it this year, and it does make me definitely make me feel optimistic every time I do. Uh, I think this, like probably most of the music picks, will be familiar to anyone who's listens to the Love is the Message podcast, where Tim and I sometimes pick records we've been listening to that year, but not to listeners of ACFM more broadly. And so this, so apologies to any of those people, but this is going to be Under the Lilac Sky by Arushi Jane. And Arushi Jane is an, is an American-based producer, composer, who is a modular synth artist, and who uses kind of drone and melodic techniques derived from her training in North Indian classical music. And it's really extraordinary. It is really like a record that stands up with some of the greatest sort of new age, psychedelic, ambient classics. Um, really fantastic. One of the things about the moment we're in now culturally that there's been this great revival of that kind of music just in the past few years which is really producing some fantastic stuff so Arushi Jane title track from the album Under the Lilac Sky. A very Gilbert selection that. <laughs> yeah. Nadia what have you got for us on your first thing that brought you a little bit of joy this year? I'm going to start with a novel, actually. So a novel that which brought me joy in 2023 is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. It's a fantastic read. It really made me appreciate gaming and the protagonists create the first blockbuster uh, called Ichigo in the book. I thought it was so rare to see a love story written in this way in a book because it's a love story between two friends, between a guy and a woman, and it spans over 30 years in the book. And I think it's really, really beautifully done. It deals with disability really well. It also has a bicultural Korean and American 
uh, aspect and deals with identity in that way, that kind of life experience of straddling two different cultures, which is something that I can really identify with. And yeah, I thought it was an exhilarating and very funny and poignant novel, and it brought me a lot of joy this year. When you say gaming, do you mean like video games and so forth? Video games, yeah. So they are video game creators. And as someone who kind of I, as we talked about on the the games episode, you know, like I played lots of Nintendo when I was younger, but I'm not really a gamer as I got got older. I, I didn't really game very much and I don't at the moment, but it really got me back into that world of appreciating world building and the kinds of conversations that go on between two people kind of creating games and how it would work in, in reality. And they're both, and it's the story of that basically and the friendship between these two people. World building within world building, I see. The play within the play. Very clever. Joe really loved that book as well. Yeah, I might put it on my list, actually. It sounds, sounds up my alley. I was trying to think about what the, the TV that I enjoyed uh, this year, uh, and if I if I did just talk about that, I'd just talk about I'm a Virgo by Boots Riley, which I think has been the best TV show this year. But I already mentioned that on the episode about surrealism, and we were talking about after surrealism. So I thought I would talk about a film, actually, a film that more or less went straight on onto Netflix. It was produced by Netflix. I think it had a couple of weeks in the theatres, but it was basically a, a made-for-Netflix film called They Clone Tyrone, directed by first-time director Jewel Taylor. And that definitely has got a Afro-surrealist feel to it. And people have compared it to Boots Riley's work, uh, Sorry to Bother You in particular, but it's got something interesting going. It's a riff on uh, 1970s black exploitation films. It sort of crosses black exploitation films with like sci-fi and perhaps like conspiracy, conspiracy films. There are a big wave of conspiracy films in the 1970s. And it brings those two sort of genres perhaps up to date in some sort of way. I should probably explain what black exploitation films are really, really briefly. There, the black exploitation was this genre of film it, it, from like nineteen seventy seven, no, nineteen seventy one up until the end of the decade, which were the, the sort of first genre really to to have uh, black protagonists, black heroes, if you like, or uh, anti heroes to some degree, because they classically the film featured somebody who was around the criminal underworld, so perhaps a drug dealer, perhaps a pimp or a private eye who was floating in that sort of world. And the sort of what would go on would be, you know, you'd see that sort of gritty stuff, lots of nice, um, like lots of great music, etc. And then this drug dealer would be operating in that world, and he'd discover that like the white world is in fact much more corrupt than the criminal world, and he'd defeat some some sort of element of the white world which was uh, impinging on this on the on the, on the black world, if you want to put it that way. The sort of first film of black exploitation is uh, was this film called Sweet Sweet Back. Badass Song by Melvin Peebles, which is in 1971. And it's it's interesting that the sort of reactions to that by the civil rights movements are really interesting, I think. I'm explaining black exploitation films just briefly in order to explain why I think they clone Tyrone is really good. Sweet, sweet badass song. This is the sort of first sort of black exploitation film. It sets the genre in a way. So so Sweetback is sort of like, I suppose they'd call him a, a sex worker these days um, or a stud or something like that, uh, who is non-political and he gets politicised because he gets he, he gets into tangle with some racist cops who are who are beating up like black revolutionaries, etc. And the black revolutionaries help him escape to Mexico. I think that's how the ending goes. The reaction to that film were in within the civil rights movement or the Black Power movement. In fact, between those two movements was very interesting. The word black exploitation comes from 
a civil rights leader, for uh, as a, a leader of the uh, NAACP, the National Association for Advancement of Coloured People, which is very much in the sort of, much more than the moderate sort of civil rights sort of end of things, where the, the idea would be that African-Americans could advance themselves, uh, perhaps assimilate into, into white society sort of thing. They really condemn black exploitation films and Sweet Sweetback's badass song, but because it's sort of played up to stereotypes, basically, and it said, you know, it's just in, in reinforcing that stereotype of black uh, associations between African Americans and crime. Whereas Huey P. Newton and the Black Panthers really celebrated that film. They said, you know, it was the first ever film of black revolution, etc. In fact, it was mandatory for Black Panther Party members to watch that film <laughs> at that point. I remember in the myth episode, we talked about Staggerly, the myth of Staggerly, and how the Black Panther Party sort of embraced that that myth of, of like the violent criminal who basically didn't care if he lived or died, and so could portray a certain form of freedom. So I think there's that sort of thing going on. Anyway, let's fast forward towards the present day, and like people have done like rehashing of black exploitation before. It's a big influence of Quentin Tarantino, for instance. And there was a remake of Shaft a, a few years ago. But like basically, they haven't done anything interesting with it. And I think the clone Tyrone really does do something interesting, basically. And I'm going to give some lots of spoilers. <laughs> I'm going to give some spoilers now. But basically, the, the plot is something like this. There's a drug dealer called uh, Fontaine, played by John Boyega. Jamie Foxx plays Slick Charles, who's sort of like a pimp from like the 1970s. He looks like he's out of the 1970s. And, and then Teona Paris plays Yo-Yo. They form a sort of like uh, investigative team to solve a mystery that emerges, basically. And they 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 directly reference Nancy Drew as they were going on. So we're going to Nancy Drew this motherfucker. Um, and the story sort of goes like this: Fontaine is a drug dealer, sort of like looks contemporary, gets killed in the first couple of minutes, then he wakes up alive the next day, and then him, Slick, and Yo Yo try to work out like what's going on, and they they sort of discover that the local area called the Glen is being pacified by these drugs being put into like stereotypically black consumption products, fried chicken, um, hair straightener, grape juice, these sorts of things, basically. And you can see like they build up this sort of like critique in it where there's this teacher who's complaining about, you know, I, 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 underfunded schools, I have to pay for equipment at my own wages sort of thing. And then as she gets her hair straightened, she says, oh, well, fuck it. It's probably just inevitable. There's nothing we can do about it. And they're, they're being pacified to stop them revolting, basically. And then a bit later on, they sort of find, they find this underground tunnels, etc. And they find out that, like, what's happening is that they're trying to keep this area as a control area, basically. Keep all of, like, the, the multinationals out. Keep white society out of this area in order to experiment on how to pacify the black population, African-Americans, pacify them and assimilate them into white culture, basically, to, and in fact, eventually to, to sort of like genetically breed blackness out of them or something like that. And the way they do that is that they keep pimps and gangsters uh, and drug dealers in the area. And if one of those gets killed, they, they've got clones of them. And they just replace them, basically. They're cloning these, these, these villains. In fact, they're cloning the stereotypes that you would that were, were repeated over and over again, the stereotypes that were repeated over and over again in black exploitation films, which I think is what's interesting about it, basically. They sort of using this black exploitation genre and the stereotypes that like the the NACC the NAACP were were criticizing and making this argument about um, you know, that perhaps that's what keeps white society out. It's an interesting one that I can't quite work through, but it's very interesting to think about it in terms of other ethnicities who became white such as like the irish americans became white and the irish americans became white by 
stereotypically and classically becoming policemen, becoming part of the oppressive apparatus, basically, and becoming racist. I remember Bernadette Devlin, a Northern Irish civil rights leader, coming over to America and being horrified by the racism amongst the Irish-American community. So, yeah, so there's something really interesting going on with that. And there's also something really interesting in the sort of conspiracy like it's a huge, it's meta conspiracy. The only person who really knows what's going on is this is this paranoid drunk guy who sits outside the shop begging for, for begging for booze, etc. So it's the, like that paranoid, huge conspiracy sort of theory that doesn't actually the sort of conspiracy fantasies rather than any sorts of conspiracies that might happen in everyday life. I thought it was a, for the first time somebody was doing something interesting with black exploitation films and doing this sort of like conspiracy fantasy element and this sort of like treasure hunt element of conspiracy fantasy uh, uh, that we've seen in contemporary society and we talked about when we talked about the, con- the cosmic right. Uh, I ain't been to church in a while. Something is up. Okay, that's a quick one from me. Now then, um, <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, I think it's your go to chuck some in the mix. I'm going to talk about uh, Joe's book. This is, you know, family plug time. That my uh, partner Joe Littler published a book called Left Feminism, which is a really good collection of interviews with self identified left feminists of various ages, um, and also prom- re- relatively prominent writers and/or activists. It was published by Lawrence and Wishart, and I was really happy to see that come out. Uh, it was really a good thing, I think, the sort of revival of socialist feminism as a distinctive political current, especially among younger women over the past few years, is really encouraging, given that it was it was really treated as a historical curiosity still sort of 10 years ago. So I think that's definitely something to be celebrated. Super important. Can't wait to read that. Do you know who's interviewed in it, Jeremy? Uh, Nancy Fraser, Akugo Emajulu, Sheila Robotham, Veronica Gargo, that's a really interesting interview, Wendy Brown, Lynn Siegel, uh, Hilary Wainwright, Ron Ware, Carol Tulloch, Angela McRobbie, Gargi Bhattacharya, Sylvia Wolby, Finn Mackay, and Sophia Siddiqui. Yeah, that is a, that's an interesting mix of like older uh, feminist theorists, our friends on the show, and like young, younger younger theorists who've like retaken up their work around contemporary themes. Yes, yeah, Veronica Gargo in particular, she does this like neoliberalism from below, which is really really interesting. Um, this idea that you know that we that isn't neoliberalism is something that's imposed, but we come to want it, sort of thing, which is a really interesting uh, angle that she uses social reproduction theory for. Okay, I think it's uh, Nadia now. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. I am going to speak about an article, a short essay um, called "Skin Centric Ecology." by uh, Andreas Weber, a Berlin-based ecologist, German biologist, philosopher, and uh, journalist. He's into concepts like sensation, subjectivity, and beauty as, as fundamental lenses for interpreting the world. I'd never heard of him, but his, this piece, Concentric um, Ecology, was put on the reading list for a reading group which I'm involved in called Inquilab, which is a cross-college students and staff reading group at University of the Arts. Shout out to them because it's a brilliant initiative. And it was put on the reading list. And it absolutely blew my mind because I had 
not, I don't think I've actually read something written with such a cadence. Basically, what he's trying to do is to put into words the admiration and the grief he feels when he's like working at a friend's house somewhere in Italy and he looks out and sees these lichens and he forms these really strong feelings towards you know these these forms on these tiles and i just thought it was so beautifully written and really touched something in me a kind of sen- a sensation that i feel when i um perhaps look at a certain tree or leaves or whatever the kind the kind of feelings that i feel when i commune with nature in that way on a daily basis or i try to commune with nature on a daily basis and and i'd not really come across writings like that so i'd really recommend that reading it brought me so much joy to read that so it's called the skin centric ecology by andreas weber and is available free to read on a website called humans nature what's what's the argument of that article there isn't an argument <laughs> oh there isn't an argument that's the point he sees something and he writes about it. I absolutely love the quality of the writing. I thought it was really beautiful. I mean, I'm sure he makes an argument, but that's not the point to me. It's about aliveness and what aliveness is and the things that you can't, that are very difficult to express in words. But I thought he did it brilliantly. And what, you know, beauty and skin and nature and all of these things. Only takes 12 minutes to read as well. We should have done a microdose reading it out. Um <laughs> My turn again now. Uh, I've only got a quick one. This that should only take 30, 40 minutes at the, at the absolute <laughs> No, I wanted to, well, I was thinking about like nonfiction books I'd read, but like not theory books that I've read, but like ever nonfiction books. I've just started this um, Different Times by David Stubbs, um, friend of the show, about, it's like a history of British comedy, which I, I've, it's sort of almost like with it, very similar arguments, in fact, to the ones we made when we discussed comedy whenever we discuss comedy on the show. Is it last year? I can't remember. But, you know, in that, if I'm not finished it, I'm sort of just enjoying reading about, reading descriptions of my favourite Ealing comedies, <laughs> as a man of a certain age would. And talking about men of a certain age, the, the book I wanted to talk about was a, is a book called I Am The Law, How Judge Dredd Predicted Our Future by Michael M- Mulker. Um, so it's about this the, the, this comic character, Judge Dredd, from the comic 2000 AD, which I read from, like, the 2000 AD started in 1977. I read it from like 79 up until like 1990, I think. And then I, I, I've inherited a couple of like people's collections. It goes on a bit more for me. It, you know, I've filled in quite some of the blanks since then because it's still going. It started in 1977. It went past the 2000 AD, which was the future, <laughs> and it kept its name, etc. It's a really interesting book, though. Michael Molker is the publicity officer or the publicity man. They call him the publicity droid in 2000 AD language for 2000 AD. And so it recounts the history of, of Judge Dredd and the main sort of storylines. But interestingly, it links that to theory, basically, to different elements of theory and ends up, in fact, with contemporary sort of like abolitionist defund the police arguments and how Judge Dredd sort of predicted some of that and how the storylines like revolved around that. It's really interesting because it starts off with a reference to sort of like the, the sort of the growing in 1977 up to like 1979, there's this growing sense that like some there's going to be an authoritarian turn basically, and of course Margaret Thatcher gets in and there is an authoritarian turn, and so he talks about policing the crisis by uh, Stuart Hall. 
not Stuart Holm, the um, the um, uh, the fiction writer. Uh, that's only funny if you've actually said this, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is what we, we we tried to record this the other day for anyone who's listening, <laughs> and that's and it's and uh, Keir accidentally said Stuart Holm. Stuart Holm's like a fairly obscure, like anarchist situation. It's all. Writer, oh god, he'd hate that, but perhaps <laughs> he, he, he'd hate this being called a situationist. It's Police in the Crisis by Stuart Hall, which is about that sort of like you know, the sort of the, the use, the, the, the development of this like authoritarianism in order to bring in neoliberalism. Like one of the criticisms you could make of writers who were writing for 2000 AD, such as Alan Moore, for instance, one of the greatest comic writers. Uh, you know, it, writing in that period, people thought that what we were seeing was a new fascism, and in fact, it was an authoritarianism in order to bring in neoliberalism. Basically, I think we're going to see something very similar in Argentina, where they've just elected a supposed anarcho-capitalist who's just announced incredible repressive measures. Uh, you know, he's talking about basically rounding people up, etc., for protesting. You know, you need that sort of authoritarianism in order to 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 liberalise the economy, basically, and, and to uh, diminish people's rights dramatically. But what's very interesting about this is it goes through the storylines. There's all sorts of very interesting storylines around democracy with, with Judge Dredd in 2000 AD, and it, it links it to the Black Lives Matter movement. One of the things about 2000 AD is I – did you read ever read that, Jeremy, 2000 AD? Yeah, yeah, I read 2000 AD. We've talked about this on the show before. Have we? Sure. Oh, yeah, I'm sure we have. Well, not only did I read 2000 AD, but – there was years and years ago, Mark Fisher and I were talking about starting a podcast, which he he was going to involve some other people in. And I think OJ Weston had come up with the name Redshift for this putative podcast. And then I told him about this idea I had had. It was just a casual observation, a conversation we had one day. And my observation was uh, no piece of fiction had anticipated the, the lineaments of neoliberal neoliberalism as accurately as Judge Dredd. And Mark was really excited by this idea and wanted us to do a whole episode of this imaginary podcast about that theme. That would have been about, you know, nine years ago, I think. So, yeah, it's a familiar idea. But it's interesting because this comes out of the 2018 stable itself, you know, the actual yeah, yeah. 2018 stable by the, the person who is most associated with 2018. Now, Michael Molko does lots of videos about 2018, etc., And it is an, an, an abolitionist argument. You know, one of the things about 2018 is that Classically, it held its audience. People who started reading it when they were young in the 1970s and 1980s sort of stuck with it. And in fact, it struggled to find a new audience. So it, it's a really, really interesting way that this guy has found to make abolitionist arguments to a cohort who would be from a wider demographic, who would be uh, most resistant to abolitionist arguments, basically, late Gen Xers, basically. <laughs> yeah, it would just be Gen Xers, perhaps late boomers, I don't know, but Gen Xers anyway. And so he's met, he's found a way to make very very radical arguments. In fact, in a way which which would really really resonate with the the sort of world that was formed by this this, this comic in in the uh, in their youth, I think. And it made me think about like the huge impact that two thousand eighty had about my my imaginary, my political imaginary. The only things that exist in the world are these big mega cities. Everything else has been destroyed by nuclear war, which was the big fear of the time. Um, and there's um, in the in the early episodes anyway. There is something like ninety six percent unemployment because robots do all the work, of course. Which is that idea that um, 
Keynes thought that, that you know we would all be working for 15 hours a week etc that sort of 20th century idea that the automation would, would bring about free time but interestingly in 2000 AD there's huge inequality still a huge authoritarianism and so people it sends people mad basically this and being able unable to work I mean one of the very early Judge Dreads was some people went mad futsy future madness and smashed up some robots who were cleaning so that they could do the cleaning instead of them. And uncharacteristically for Judge Dredd, he sentences them to 10 years hard labor, of which they're absolutely overjoyed. <laughs> yeah, anyway, had a very big influence on me, uh, 2000 AD. Like, it really formed my imaginary in lots and lots of ways. Uh, it probably informed like other imaginaries as well. It's The imagery of a city is very much the one that Blade Runner picks up and runs with, etc. So it's part, probably part of our wider uh, imaginaries, basically. But I'd recommend that book, although it did mean I went and spent quite a lot of money buying Judge Dredd collections afterwards. Okay, I'm going to do another bit of music. It's another bit of North Indian classical music. It's another one that we played on a patron's episode of Love is the Message. So, But there are many people lis- uh, listening to this who are not patrons of Love is the Message, deplorably. So uh, this will be a track from the album Samarpan by Manish Pingle. Manish Pingle is a a young uh, Indian musician, I think based in Mumbai, who plays the Mohan's Veena. This is an instrument sort of invented by the great Indian musician Vishwa Mohan Bhatt, which is a sort of specially adapted slide guitar. And it's just, it's an album of really, really well executed classical ragas. It was particularly exciting to me because as far as I know, and I'm pretty much am an authority on this, it is the only new recording of an Indian classically trained musician playing classical ragas to have been released on vinyl for possibly 25 to 30 years. It got a small vinyl release from its label, uh, I think it's called Rambling Records in, um, Australia. I'm sure most people will listen to it streaming, but if you can stream a high resolution copy, it does sound really good. So the out that's a Manish Pingles al- album, Samarpan. I mean, there's other Indian musicians that release stuff that gets released on vinyl, but it's all it's not just it's not classical ragas. It's stuff going for a more sort of popular or modern audience. And then there's there are loads of albums of people playing classical ragas, but they usually get released on CD. But this was a real novelty for me. But anyway, whether you're listening to it on vinyl or just streaming or something, then I can really recommend it. So I'm also going to talk about an album which I came across this year uh, that brought me joy. An album that brought me joy in 2023 is Amel and the Sniffers' Comfort to Me, which was released in September 2021. I'm not typically a punk aficionado, but I absolutely love this album. Shout out to my friend Ben, who introduced me to it. They are an Australian pub rock or pump a punk, sorry, rock band based in uh, Melbourne. And I just absolutely love the energy of this band. The communication of frustration, anger, and all of those good 
punk vibes that are really helpful at a point where you're angry and have a lot of anxiety, as I did this summer, was really great to me. I absolutely love the sound of this band and all of the different things that they communicate because sometimes you don't need meditation, Zen, and yoga to get you through. Sometimes you need punk. So I uh, recommend this album, Comfort to Me, especially the songs uh, Hurts and Knifey. Great. I'll just do a quick one. Uh, 20, 20 minutes, 25. Um, <laughs> I was thinking, I wanted to just talk about novels, basically. I, I read um, Colson Whitehead's Crook Manifesto, and is the one that came before that. This the first one in the, this is a sequel to Harlem Shuffle. The, the reason Crook Manifesto is interesting is because it, it's got a, a sub theme of black exploitation film. But I'll leave that be because the book I actually wanted to talk about is the book called The World We Make by N.K. Jemison. So I've been interested in a couple of years in in this sort of wave of fiction, which people have talked about as racecraftian fiction, H.P. Lovecraft that we've talked about on this show before, and, and how that gets turned around, so his racism get becomes a feature of that, and and it gets turned around, so if you can see it from a different angle, it's one way of thinking. It. There's a there's a wider, it's part of a wider sort of trend as well. The the cultural theorist uh, um, Stephen Shaviro has talked about a speculative nostalgia where you're reworking the past basically to try to work out a different future sort of idea. But the book, uh, The World We Make, is it's a sequel to uh, the 2020 book, The City We Became. Uh, and it's sort of set in a contemporary world, apart from in this world, each city, sort of when it gets to a certain stage, that one person becomes the personification of it, becomes like an avatar, it can get sort of like special powers to some degree. And New York in this series of books is just coming into it to the size where uh, where is coming into consciousness and instead of a single person it has each of its boroughs has an avatar sort of personification the four boroughs like queens the bronx etc etc and manhattan etc and then there's a fifth borough staten island uh, which doesn't join together with these other four boroughs it's in fact it's scared of the big city uh, and scared to visit the big city because you know of, of white fear of of the uh, of the multiracial city sort of thing, and in fact, the Staten Island, the Avatar of Staten Island, this woman starts to form alliances with the thing that the the cities in the in this world are battling, which is an avatar of the city of Rillia, which is uh, one of H.P. Lovecraft's great lost city, basically, which is sort of like it gets mingled up with like the old ones, these co- huge cosmic gods, etc. This sort of like setup is a way in which Jemison can sort of talk about contemporary effects, contemporary events, basically, particularly the like the rise of fascism in, in the US. Because the effect of really when it attacks the New York or when it tries to interfere with New York is to spread like racism and mean spiritedness and petty mindedness, etc., and to spread racism. And so in the first book, in the city we became, like there are alt right trolls in this who are operating for the city of Rillia, uh, right-wing trolls like art world provocateurs, sort of edgelord provocateurs, etc. And then in the second book, there are the Proud Boys are marching through the city, etc. And there's, there's an analogue for a sort of sub-Trump character who's standing to be the city, the mayor of New York City, etc. 
this race crafting fiction is a way of sort of thinking through the construction of race, which gets sort of conjured up, basically, to think it through in, in a similar way to sort of like the supernatural or the occult or magic, etc. Some of those Jemison books, I, I know there has been a lot of speculation about the fact that that cosmology in the book seems to be very close to the cosmology in the 90s tabletop role-playing game Unknown Armies. Oh, really? There's also figures like avatars emerging, not not of avatars of places, but of types of coming into existence as a manifestation of a sort of collective consciousness. Yeah, Unknown Armies is a game we've really got, got to get to the table, as they say, one, one of these days. It's a really great game. When we did the episode about myth, one of the distinctions we made about myth was like, who are the actors? What's the myth about? Is it like a collective agency or individual agency? And of course, a collective agency is very difficult to write about. And so like this idea of avatars is a way of, re- of resolving that, basically. You can have collective agency, which is sort of funneled or personified through, a, through an individual. Jeremy, what's your next thing? Uh, shall I mention hegemony? Yeah. We, this is sort of a joint one. Kira and I have carried on playing quite a lot of games together this year. Probably the one that brought me the most joy because it was my little creation and there's a lot of fun is the uh, game set in Edwardsian London. We've, <laughs> we we play at Christmas time, it seems, really. Which is based on sort of Mr. James and Conan Doyle and P.G. Woodhouse. Yeah, well, no, you should explain it. It's based on Mr. James, but the characters we created, we just fell into playing it like Jeeves and Worcester. <laughs> so I started calling it Mr. Jeeves game because it's a, a fantastic. <laughs> I realised even before we started playing it, and once I'd created the rules, I made it. I saw that you know, I had made a comment to you guys that it's it's come out a bit P.G. Woodhouse. <laughs> I mean, we're playing sort of caricatures of Edwardian upper class types, like having supernatural adventures, but also being quite reactionary for for our own entertainment oh, that's, sort of thing, <laughs> that's the sort of thing we like to do in our spare time yeah, you guys um, like to do and i like to watch <laughs> with interest from afar you would love it Nadia. there's lots of stuff for you to do i don't know i think i think i always like it in theory but it just as we discovered over acfm christmas it role-playing games just don't animate me in the way that it does you guys it just it's, it just doesn't and i can't figure out why but I'm afraid that's the truth, but carry on. Uh, if you are a fan of so-called Euro games, in other words, extremely, extremely complicated board games that take hours and hours to play, which are called Euro games, basically, because they're really popular in Germany. I don't think they're really popular anywhere else in Europe, to be honest. Then this year's big event game was a game that both Keir and myself backed on Kickstarter as soon as we became aware that it was a project. And that game is called Hegemony, Lead Your Class to Victory. And yeah, I would, and we, uh, we played it with uh, our friends Alex and David. We put aside a whole day, and an afternoon and an evening. We played it for like about... <laughs> nine hours or something and we didn't manage to finish but we hang on a minute we didn't manage to finish one round of that game there was something like five rounds or something ridiculous <laughs> I, think we did. I think we did a couple of rounds okay. you're supposed to play five i think both times we played it we got two to we got like halfway through about halfway through and ran out of time and then we played it online which I have to say was a slightly more sterile experience. I think without the tactility of each other's company and the boards and pieces and the fact that you are basically just doing some quite challenging homework, (laughs) (laughs) like is that the thing you're doing with your time at that moment kicks in. I would, 
Um, I would say it was really good that they did it. I think it is a pretty good, uh, as an attempt to depict a basically Gramscian theory of sort of political sociology in a board game. It's pretty good, pretty successful, does it pretty well. I, I did find it really fun playing it. Like I would have been quite happy to spend a whole weekend playing it and finish it in theory if I didn't have other stuff to do. But I, in in reality, any other future occasion when we manage to get that many friends in a room together for a whole weekend i think we're probably not going to spend it playing a board game yeah but i would still if you like that that sort of board game or if you just want a really unique gaming experience just the once i would put aside a couple of days to play to learn it and play it but it was really good game really we should fun. explain it comes with like quite a fat book of concepts to explain the different concepts of well it comes yeah it does come with a book of concepts so they i would have to say the academic they commissioned to um write this book of concepts is not somebody noted for any expertise in Gramsci and political <laughs> So the punchline of this is, of course, is that uh, Jeremy and Alex Williams, who was one, who was one of the people we played with, uh, just re- recently wrote a book called Hedge Money Now. <laughs> we did. I think we've barely mentioned it on the show, but it came out in September, like 22. But yeah, if you want the up-to-date uh, state-of-the-art of hegemonic theory and analysis, then yeah, go and buy my and Alex's Williams book, Hegemony Now, published by Verso last year. A very nice stocking filler, as long as you have quite a large stocking. All right, let's, uh, is, is it you now, Nadia? It is. So I would like to talk about an event which brought me joy this year. So the event was a conversation with Erini Vallejo, a classicist, at the Hay Festival in Hay on Wye this year in June. And she was talking about her book, Papyrus. And I thought it was such an incredible event because Irini herself is just so enthusiastic about her topic. The book is basically about an immersive journey through the history of books and libraries, like who invented this, this form and this idea. And she talks about it in the sense that Uh, the concept of a library was as disruptive as the internet. And another thing that I discovered um, in that talk is, is this idea that reading aloud was 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 the norm and so the idea that you would look at a scroll or what later became books and read them silently to yourself was like never thought of as a thing when it when it first started out but it is just such an amazing talk itself i did buy the book i thought the the, the talk was just so inspiring to sit there in a in a big tent in in hay on why with her speak about a, t- a topic that she was so passionate about and it takes you from everything from you know it starts in the alexandra library alexandra the great and there's all of these women in it as well and and all of this chat about all of these really empowered women but also like censorship and when censorship starts uh, and and how it plays out in these kind of ancient times um it also introduced me to hypatia which i did not know about uh slightly embarrassed yeah yeah no i didn't know about hypatia. have you seen the movie have you seen Ag- have you seen agora no i haven't no, I haven't. And I didn't know anything about her. And um, and being, you know, this philosopher and astronomer and, and mathematician who lived in Alexandria in Egypt, and I just became fascinated by her after that talk. But it was one of those events where you were, you were in this tent at, you know, a literary festival, and just the whole room was just so excited by there being this, this speaker who was just really, really engaged in her topic. And it was, and it was a wonderful event to be at. So that's Irini Vallejo at the Hay Festival in June this year. 
Yeah, that history of silent reading is so fascinating. It's such an interesting idea when you think about it, that it just wasn't something... That was done. They, don't, they think people didn't really do it before like the 18th century. Mm. That people didn't just sit there like you know, having the words in their head. They're, nobody's totally sure. Is it sort of tied up with the novel then and like the novel as the... The thing that introduces, you know, this sort of private. It's kind of the novel and like reading in bed ah. as like a new, a new thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess, I guess, just physically, like if you've got like a a handwritten manuscript or a scroll, it's not like convenient to like read in bed or. Yeah, you'd be standing or walking around. But it's also like the novel is is always thought of as like you know the the thing that introduces interiority into. That's right. Yes, to some extent. Yeah, the whole idea of the. the the inner life of the characters being the thing that you're interested in or, the, or the, and your own inner life being a thing you'd be interested in, which there's not much evidence of, like, apart from people writing about kind of romantic infatuation sometimes. There's not much evidence of, if, indeed, like at any point in history before the 18th century. It is really, and, Hy- and that Hypatia is a fascinating historical figure and if you, I re- everybody should see, watch that film Agora about Hypatia, which is a really extraordinary film. It's one of those things like, Matt, how did they get money for this? It's a film about like a fifth century, like Alexandrian. Female mathematician, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> That's, but it's great. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great. It's made me really, <laughs> I so much want to do a role-playing game saying like <laughs> late antique Alexandria sometime. It would be so fun. Yes, I can see I can see a theme developing on <laughs> how me and Jeremy now relate to the world. I think it's my it's my go next. And I was following your lead, Nadia. I want to do, it's not an event, but like an exhibition that I stumbled across at Yorkshire Sculpture Park. So uh, Yorkshire Sculpture Park, just outside Wakefield, really, I suppose is the nearest place between Wakefield and Sheffield. An old stately home, loads of fantastic sculptures. I once went, met Nadia there for an extremely wet walk, but it absolutely <laughs> poured down. We tried to have a have a picnic. You know, you can go for walks and, it, uh, uh, and there's sculpture all around the park, but also there's there's sort of exhibition halls. So it is something you can sort of stumble across. And I stumbled across quite a small exhibition by a, an artist called Jonathan Baldock. The exhibition was called Touchwood, and it was it was quite small, one room. It's like a series of like ceramics. And then sort of textiles, tapestries, I suppose you'd you'd call them, um, all surrounding a wicker, a wicker coffin. Uh, and in fact, these incredible textile sculptures of like the, of the sort of green man and sort of like, you know, folkloric sort of figures, basically. And the ceramics were very much that as well. You know, it really played on this sort of like mythology and folklore. But because it was surrounding a coffin, it almost had like a folk horror sort of feeling to it, basically. I really, really, really enjoyed it. And it started making me think about this, like why is like that folklore, folk mythology, folk horror, such a big thing at the moment? We've talked about it, of course. Well, we talked about it probably on several shows, but we did an episode on folk and we've done myth, we've done magic as well, actually. And we've sort of circulated around this. And this time last year, I went, I saw the horror show at Somerset House. I don't know if either of you two saw that. And that ended on a on a sort of folkloric, mythic, sort of witchy sort of room, like a collection of artworks around that sort of theme. Uh, it just and like, you know that I th- like tarot's having a bit of a comeback. There's like all sorts of new tarot cards, tarot decks being created, repeated in this very nice philosopher's tarot book, uh, which has got a card, uh, an acid communist card in it, in fact. And I was just it like made me think about like why is it so attractive at the minute. 
and like you know why and in particular I, like you know this like idea of like intu- intuitive thought of intuition and and those sorts of things that can bring out intuition such as like tarot etc just seem very very popular at the minute i have my own theories but uh, uh, yeah i just found it very interesting basically set up a whole series of, of thoughts for me come it is time to keep your appointment with the wicker man I'm going to plug a couple of uh, books by people I know again. One is After Work by Nick Cernicek and Helen Hester, which finally came out after a long struggle to get it written. It's a book in the general vein of sort of post-work, anti-work, critiques of work books. But this is relating to the labour of social reproduction and domestic labour and just thinking about what it might mean to reimagine a world in which we deliberately try to reduce domestic labour through social organisation and technological means. It's really interesting. It's had a fair amount of coverage already, but it's definitely deserves as much as it can get. And another book by a, a, a couple, actually, that came out a couple of years ago, but I keep coming back to, and I think definitely deserves to get a lot more coverage than it has had, is Ben Little and Alison Winch's book, The New Patriarchs of Digital Capitalism, which I think I have mentioned, actually, on the show about the internet, but goes into a really strong analysis of the intersections between certain kinds of new misogyny and social reaction and cyber capitalism. I think it's also worth mentioning the fact that that post-work politics has been pursued in after work has had a really good run in the general activities of the think tank autonomy this year and that's They've got quite a lot of coverage for some really strong analytical policy work and conceptual work around what it would mean to shift towards, in particular, a four-day week as a working norm. And in a really politically gloomy year, it's been quite encouraging to see some of that happening. So another significant event which brought me joy this year has been the phenomenal demonstrations in support of the Palestinian people who have been subjected to this ongoing attack by the state of Israel. Um, The reason it's brought me joy is I absolutely love these moments where, as we discussed in the protest episode, the establishment grossly misreads the British public and the national sentiment. It was blatantly obvious, I think, to people that human beings in Palestine were being massacred and that the Israeli government is effectively committing genocide and ethnic cleansing of Palestinian people and the establishment, both the Labour right and the Tories, were trying to paint this whole story as something completely different. And it was obvious, I think, to the British people um, uh, what was actually going on. And these demonstrations, as we know, uh, the largest one had about 750,000 people at least. The local actions are ongoing. And I find that these moments of collective action in public space are incredibly healing, I think, for all of us. I think not just because this is such a horrific situation and horrific injustice that people want to be able to 
get together and express some sort of view on, but also I think because of the last 15 years or so of uh, austerity and uh, injustice in the UK, it's given people a space to be able to, to funnel that anger through. And, and I, yeah, I really experienced it as a, as a public space of, of healing. And, and um, it's been really important to, to me to be able to be involved as much as I can throughout the, the end of the year. And of course, these demonstrations are still ongoing. And it's just really good to see public space taken over by <laughs> just normal people uh, in the UK once again. So yeah, it's the Palestinian, the, the, the demonstrations in support of Palestine this year in the UK that have brought me a lot of joy. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's strange, isn't it, to think of like joy amongst that horrendous misery. But like, you know, those attacks on, on, on Gaza, I think, are meant to be demonstrative to the rest of the world in some sort of way, you know, of like, like this is this is a potential future, basically, a sort of eco-apartheid world in which there will be the deployment of like incredible authoritarian measures and excessive violence, basically. And some people will be inside and some people will be outside of that of that protected zone. Um, and of course, the rise of like nationalism and fascism has to be seen in some degree in relation to that the prospect of that. Yeah, but uh, but uh, but I also think it's like it it says something to me about people in the UK, like understanding yeah. the fact that this is one of the last holdings of a Western colonial project in the Middle East. Like this is about colonialism. This is not in the 20th century. This is in the 21st century. And I think people recognize that. And that's what I felt on the streets. You know, it's an exceptional situation, what's going on. It's not, there isn't really a model like it around the world. And the project is to kill as many Palestinians as possible. And I think the British public know that. And that's what I felt on the street and it makes me feel a part of something it makes me feel a lot less alienated to be a part of that in these like you said Kia, horrific circumstances basically the joy is that the, the is that the british public or at least large sections of it you know uh, um are are able to see through like an almost complete propaganda effort the effort to completely block out any dissenting voices in both politics and media and so the joy is that the world is a little bit more full of potential than it would have been if those protests hadn't hadn't happened, basically, something like that. In that realm, I've, my last one will be in a similar sort of vein, actually, a bit earlier in the year, well, actually still ongoing, but it's the United Auto Workers strikes in the US are something that's given me joy and hope for the future because it's part of a, of a wider trend in which more militant and more left-wing union leaders are getting elected in the US, and particularly um, very smart ones, so they're... The, the the leader of the UAW, I think, got elected last year, but like you know, the strikes took place this year. Is Sean Fain, who has in introduced really very very clever striking tactics, where there would be like strikes would go up the supply chains, basically, so key supply chain uh, factory su supplying a certain product would go on strike, and the rest of the union wouldn't go on strike, and they'd just be putting money into the strike fund, and then they change that, and a different factory would would go on strike etc a way of like causing maximum disruption to to the bosses with like minimum disruption to the social reproduction of the workers it's really really interesting very very clever one of the interesting things about the uaw is that last sort of like decade i think they started recruiting amongst graduate students in the us which is sort of a very interesting thing 
there was some criticism saying, well, it's the graduate students which have elected Sean Fain. It's not true, actually. He would have won even if you discounted the, the graduate students. But that, that in itself also suggests this sort of the very transversal alliances that are being made where people are seeing similarities in their situations across sort of sectors where you, you really wouldn't have thought that those sort of alliances could be could be built, I think. And then the bringing of different skills together to create like new innovative and very um, effective tactics it's probably you know in these things which are like pop up into visibility every now and then you know the hard work of organizing it's being being done and like you know the shifting of of cultures amongst unions etc i think there's something similar going going on in the uk much at a much sort of quite lower level i think you know i think that sort of thing is going on you can see that there's been various strikes across the uk which would be very very interesting actually and very very strong um and so, yeah, those sorts of things, the things that happen outside our view are probably the things that set the potential for the longer term, basically. And so among, in, a, in a very, very dark year, you know, perhaps we can see things shifting under the surface, you know, bursting up in this in a very unexpectedly large, well, for me anyway, uh, de- demonstrations against Israel's war on Gaza, for instance, is showing you know, the, the, the potentials that are there um, for, the, for the battles to come, basically. All right. So Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year from all of us at ACFM. Yes, Happy New Year, everyone. The solstice has passed. And as we know, uh, when the solstice happens, every revolution will bring more light, more and more light. Uh, hold on to that message as you go into the new year. This is Ashley.